make noise, 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 make noise. This is a man. When it comes to hip hop culture, he played a very pivotal part in it. This man, by he didn't he I paid my company paid for it. By putting me on the back of this magazine, it made me a little superstar in the music business. There is no hip hop history without this man's magazine. He is the founder of a magazine called The Source. That magazine, without a doubt, even to this day, is the most powerful, most respected, and the biggest magazine that hip hop ever had. Period. Give it up for Dave Mates, people. We're, talk we're talking to a legend here. How are you feeling? What's up, Scoop? What's going on, man? It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. Thank Appreciate you it. Thank you. No, it's, it, 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 listen, it's a fact. You know, I put it to you like this. Let's start here. We're in the world of, of uh, digital entertainment. The, the back of the source magazine at the time, for people who are not old enough to know, this was some massive shit. If you could equate what being on the Source magazine, on the back of the Source magazine, would be today in media, what kind of reach would that be? What, what do you think that would be? Oh, man. I mean, uh, it's hard because there really isn't a dominant platform like that, especially for hip hop anymore. I mean, you know, the source, like you said, I mean, the source was the Bible of hip hop. It was known as being, and, and it was, you know, this was before social media, uh, before the internet. So there was very, you know, few places to get any information. The source, you know, pretty much was the, the main place. So, I mean, man, today, I don't know. I mean, there's really not, like I said, there's not one platform. It, it would have to be like a few things kind of combined, you know, like mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. room, world star, you know, like complex I, or whatever, you know, different things like that all rolled up in, in, in one. I, I, this is what I said. If it was today's world, it would be, you would be, if the back page of, the reach of the back page of the source at the time would be shade room, complex, ball alert, Rap Radar, Spotify, <laughs> Pandora, World Star Hip Hop, um, and then running fucking a massive campaign on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. <laughs> it would mean that everybody that fucks with hip hop or black culture would get it. Yeah, that's crazy. That, 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 that's, what, that's what I would equate it to. So let's start from the beginning. Sure. How did the source even start? What were the beginnings of the source? How did it start? Uh, well, uh, as briefly as I can. I mean, the beginning is 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 me growing up in Washington D.C., um, just kind of getting into black music and culture from from a young age, being you know in in D.C., going through the public schools, uh, and then uh, going to Harvard. I got into Harvard. I uh, showed up at Harvard. This is 1986, uh, wearing you know like my fila sweatsuit and my you know my dc fly gear and and uh immediately you know didn't really fit in there at all a lot of very very different type of people 
Um, and but I did end up uh, meeting this one one kid uh, freshman year who was from Philly and he was into hip hop and um, his name was John Schechter and um, we ended up joining the radio station, uh, the Harvard radio station, which had a big signal broadcasting throughout Boston and but it played classical music 95% of the time. But uh, we were able to get a, a hip hop radio show late on Friday nights, you know, in a you know graveyard shift or whatever, and uh, we started a show called Street Beat. Um, the show was a hit back then. You know, there was no you know hip hop on commercial radio, especially in Boston, but really nowhere. Um, so college radio was the only place people could hear hip hop. There was a couple other college stations playing some. But our show, you know, quickly became big throughout the city. I mean, people were found out about it. They were listening, you know, religiously every week. And uh, so I got really kind of into that because that gave me sort of an outlet off of the campus of Harvard and the type of people there to kind of interact more with the, the real people, let's say, out, you know, in the community, in the, in the greater Boston area. Um, so the way the source ended up coming about was um, the thing about the radio station was you're allowed to sell uh, sponsorships on it, even though it's a college station. That was one of the reasons I joined in the beginning is I'm like, okay, I can make a few dollars because I've been doing some sales and different, different stuff like that. And um, so I'm going around town trying to get sponsors for my radio show. And I'm, I'm showing up at the record stores and mom and pop stores and the clothing stores. And they're like laughing at me, like, you know, who's listening to a, a hip hop show on, on Harvard's radio station. Like you, you gotta be kidding me. So I came up with the idea to build a mailing list of my listeners because I knew I had people all over the city. They would call in, you know, every week and, you know, from all over. So I started uh, asking people to call in and give me their address to join the mailing list for the radio show. So I would write down, you know, names and addresses every week, ended up with over thousand something name and addresses, putting them in a computer, you know, every week to be a little database and eventually, um, out of that, I came up with the idea for the source as a, as a newsletter, really, because in answering all those calls and talking to the people, what I was hearing was people wanted to know what was going on. When's the new, you know, Public Enemy album coming out? Who produced that new Big Daddy Kane single? You know, what's going on with EPMD? Whatever it is, like there was no information and people were thirsty for, for, for information. Now, I, I started to build up some relationships with different record labels, you know, in New York and in L.A., trying to get the advanced music so my show would have, the, you know, the first, you know, play the song before anybody else, that type of thing. So so I'm talking to the rep, you know, at Tommy Boy, Rod Houston, and I'm talking to the rep at Jive Records, Karen Durand, and I'm talking oh, to... Did you, say, did you say Rod Houston? Remember Rod Houston? Rod Houston wound up... Do you remember? Because I worked for Tommy Boy. Rod Houston wound up. I never knew he was a promo back. This is some other shit, people. Just give me a second. Yeah. Industry shit. Um, Rod Houston, by the time I got there, was the guy shooting videos. Okay. And now you know Rod Houston is the voice behind Verizon and T-Mobile. I didn't even know that. Shout out to Rod. I got to catch up with him. Yeah. Good people, man. Like, One of my first he's like, supporters. When he's like, get one 5G phone for free, and you can get the other 5G phone for $7. <laughs> That's fucking Rod Houston. 
Shout out to Rob, man. Yeah, Rob, Rob was the, like the promotion guy for Tommy Boy. So me and him built a relationship. So I would get information from these people. Like, you know, what, you know, they tell me what's going on with De La Soul or what's going on with whoever. And, and I'll be able to give that information out. So the idea came, let me start a newsletter and give out hip hop news and information, mail it out for free to all these people who I got their name and addresses. And then on the back of the newsletter, I sold the ads. So I had ads from maybe three uh, or four record company, I mean, record stores in Boston and Jive Records actually took out an ad. And these were like, you know, $50, $75 for an ad. This is, this is the first issue of The Source behind me hanging on the wall, the yellow piece of paper. Uh, wow. And uh, so that was it. It started as one Xerox sheet of paper. And man, people loved it. And it, it was flying off the, the shelves everywhere I was putting it. So, you know, went from one page to six pages to 16 pages, a little booklet. And I'm doing this all basically out of my dorm room and uh, starting to get more advertising from record labels, you know, as, as it get built up, started building up distribution in, in record stores. Then after giving it away free, the first few of them, I'm like, well, let me, let me, you know, it's getting thicker now. Let's try to sell it for a dollar twenty-five, and I would just put it on consignment, you know, to all the, uh, all the uh, record stores, and then started calling up mom and pops in every city around the country, saying, hey, I want to ship you ten, twenty copies of this new magazine for hip hop, and you know, try it out. If it sells, and you send me the check, and I'll, I'll send you, you know, the next round, and it, it worked. I mean, I built up you know, over a thousand record stores around the country selling the source. And that's really how the source developed its base being in, in those mom and pop stores everywhere uh, across the country in every, pretty much every neighborhood in every major city. Um, and, you know, just one thing led to another. The other big part of it was uh, around that time I, I was given a book by somebody and it was the history of Rolling Stone magazine. And I didn't know one thing about Rolling Stone or rock music, Jan Winter, none of that. But I read this book and I was like, wow, you know, the similarities between rock and roll and hip hop are really interesting. You know, rock and roll in the 50s and 60s, you know, was, was considered this, you know, music that's corrupting the youth of America and, you know, this terrible, you know, influence on youth and stuff like that. And, um, and then Jan Winter started Rolling Stone as an underground newspaper for rock fans. He was just a young rock fan, rock fanatic, who said, hey, let me create this little newspaper and kind of build it up. And, and as you probably know, Rolling Stone throughout the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s was like the premier voice of the, the rock and roll generation. It was one of the leading you know, media platforms in, in, in the world uh, as far as music and popular culture. And I said, well, man, you know, hip hop's going to be bigger than rock and roll, you know, because one of the things I, I, I noticed very early on was unlike rock and roll, which kind of, you know, it took white people to really bring it maybe more to the mainstream or they kind of cut the original people, you know, black folks, of course, who created rock and roll uh, in, in the 50s, the Little Richards and the Chuck Berries and everybody like that got pushed out and uh, rock became white music. But with hip hop, you know, in the 80s, all the artists were black, but the fans were of every race, every socioeconomic background. We were just young. If you were, you know, around that time, if you were under 25, then you were into hip hop. If you were kind of mm -hmm. over 25, then 
you were like, you know, what's this bullshit? You know, we don't fuck with that. Whether you were black, white, or whatever, people didn't fuck with hip hop back at, at those in those days. So I'm like, I'm gonna build the Rolling Stone of the hip hop generation, and that became, you know, that became my uh, my vision initially for the next few years was was to do that. Now, 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 two things: when did people stop laughing, and when did it go from? the record stores to when we saw it in the actual newsstand. Sure, sure. Uh, well, newsstands, for, it took a little while because, again, the newsstand distributors and wholesalers, you know, these are people that have no connection to hip-hop, don't like it, don't want, don't want to know about it, you know, none of that. So they, they were very negative towards it for a number of years. Um, we ended up getting onto newsstands in uh, 91, or 92, uh, one, one of those years, we finally got our first, uh, we got on newsstands in 91, and then we got a national distributor in 92. Um, and uh, that was when we first started to get into the regular places where magazines are sold, you know, bookstores, supermarkets, whatever, you know, all, all, all other magazine shops like there used to be, which there aren't too many anymore. Um, and as far as people taking it serious, I mean, you know, the, the people, the customers took it serious from the jump you know, because they loved it. You know, there was all kind of information and people were fiending to know what was going on with hip hop and the way the source was put together. You know, back then, the only thing you did have was was like right on Black Beat, you know, the teeny bottom magazines, you know, what? Yeah, what's what's, you know, Slick Rick's favorite food and, you know, just kind of corny, you know, teeny bopperish stuff. So the source was, you know, real information. We spoke intelligently, but we spoke in a way that, you know, was the language of the people. We didn't talk down to people, and we were kind of like the champions for hip-hop. We were like, you know, the rest of the world against us, and we're going to be that voice that's going to show the world, you know, what hip-hop is really all about. So um, the people accepted it. I mean, it took years, like, again, advertising-wise, record companies were the only business I could get for at least the first you know, three or four years. Then, then you started to, when, when Cross Colors came out and Carl Kanai, you know, they started mm -hmm. advertising in every issue. That was, that was big, but we didn't get any mainstream clothing companies for several more years. The first sneaker advertisement I got was maybe 94 Fila and then Nike came in. So, you know, you're talking about a good five, six, seven years in before the advertising and then and then a few more years to get stuff like coca-cola and all that kind of stuff happened really in the the mid to late 90s now now, now i always heard i mean i know i, I know it's true, but i'd always heard the rumor being in new york that benzino was a part owner of the source with you was that was that true or false and if so how did he wind up becoming you know a partner with you and all that Sure. Well, um, around at that time when I was in college and I was doing my radio show, uh, like I said, I was getting out into Boston and trying to connect with the people and, and support a lot of the local acts. Uh, actually, I was I was uh, uh, helping Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs um, at first, um, working with them. Uh, they were called the Three Death Notes back then before he became mm -hmm. and the Bulldogs. Shout out to Ed O. Um, so Benzino was part of a group called the Almighty RSO. Uh, that mm -hmm. was making a lot of noise in Boston. They actually had won Best Rap Group for the Boston Music Awards, and I read about them in a newspaper, and I'm like, man, I got to find out, you know, who these guys are. And uh, 
they gave a show somewhere and I went down, introduced myself. I'm like, hey, you know, I want you guys to come up to my radio show. I'm, I was known as Go-Go Dave. Most people in Boston, even to this day, know me as Go-Go Dave. Mm -hmm. That was my radio name. And uh, so that's how the uh, relationship and the friendship began, um, you know, was just through, through his group. And um, I began helping his group, uh, got them their first record deal uh, at Tommy Boy Records and maybe 90, 89, 90, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, basically for, for you know, once I uh, graduated in 1990, I moved down to New York City. We opened up the source office on, on Broadway in Houston. And, you know, um, you know, he was still in Boston and doing music. So he was never involved in the early years of the source. We, uh, we were involved together working on, you know, his music and I was helping him with his music. Um, and then after a few more years went by, um, took baby and like 94, I had a big falling out with some of the, uh, editors of the source magazine. A couple of mm -hmm. them were my partners because at Harvard, I ended up bringing in three other partners. These were the, my, my actual partners in the beginning was John Schechter, uh, James mm -hmm. Bernard and Ed Young. Mm -hmm. Uh, James and Ed also were Harvard students that I met, you know, after the source had got started and brought them in and gave them a piece of it. Um, so there was a big uh, fallout in 94. There was a big walkout of the staff. I remember that. It was crazy. They were trying to, you know, they had petitions saying that I, I, I had to resign or they weren't, you know, going to come back to work. And uh, that didn't work out so good for them. Um, in the end, you know, I kept it moving, brought in new new people. Um, but kind of during that time, Benzino sort of had my back, you know, and came down from Boston when when some of that shit was going on. And, you know, there was just a kind of a point around around there where I, you know, I had lost my a couple of my partners. So I didn't really, you know, have partners. And uh, so I asked him to, to uh, come in and, and, and work with me because I thought, you know, a lot of his ideas and, and different things, you know, could help me grow the, the, the brand and the business going forward. So it's around it's around 95 uh, when when uh, he was made a, a, a partner, uh, you know, in the in the company and, uh, you know, remained that way for, you know, for a number of years until until we left the source in 2006. Right now. And, and I remember that I remember that walkout. Uh, uh, clearly, I think that was my first year in the music industry. I believe that I was that was my first year doing rap promo at Tommy Boy Records, and I remember that. And I, and, and people, just in case you don't know, James Bernard, John Schechter, this was like the core of the Source magazine, and these were like really, really serious writers and, and dudes who, you know, they were putting it down. The bottom line is that they were putting it down, and they were the core, and of course you had a problem, and, and then you move forward. When you, what, what, when you move forward from there, were you nervous? Did you think that the source was going to lose a little bit of the oomph that 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 it took to get you where you are? Or you, you just weren't worried. No, I mean, you know, again, I'm just always been, you know, like I, you know, from the beginning, I started with one sheet of paper. You know what I mean? And my vision was to create, you know, what it what I did create and, and even more. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of obstacles along the way, a lot of people, you know, naysayers. Um, 
you know, I didn't listen to that stuff. I knew in my, my mind what I was trying to do, what I was going to do. And I just found a way I was very, you know, I'm a very determined person. And, uh, you know, I, you know, shit, it was hard. That first issue, you know, was we had to make a deadline and I'm bringing in like, you know, freelance people and trying to get it done. But we got the first one done just, just in time. And then, you know, brought in some, some new people. I mean, and, you know, the magazine flourished. The magazine uh, grew by leaps and bounds in the next few years. Uh, although you're right, those people uh, who walked out were very talented and, and contributed uh, some great uh, stuff to the source in those first few years. The people that, that I brought in afterwards were phenomenal as well. I mean, many of them many of them from both eras are still doing their thing out here on, on a big level in media. Some of them are in movies and TV world and all over the place. Uh, but, you know, right after that, I brought in Bakari Katwana. Shout out to Bakari because me and him are working together on the summit next week that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about. And uh, I brought in Selwyn Hines. Selwyn then became mm -hmm. the editor-in-chief. Bakari was executive editor um, and there was a team, Carlito Rodriguez came in. Mm -hmm. Um, he became a really important person, Riggs Morales. Um, Riggs. you know, many Paul, people, so, so you know, Riggs is behind Cardi B. So you understand what he's a, he's a, a, a top executive at, at, uh, at, uh, Atlantic and he, he has his hands in the Cardi B project. So these are people who make a noise today. Yeah. Uh, Tracy McGregor, who was, who was in there. Uh, she brought me in. I used to do an article in the source called Scoopology. It was extremely, um, extremely popular, and that led to the next iteration of that, which was my TV show with my ex-wife, Nan and White. And so you had a lot of good people that had come through there. Um, you had two things that people highly respected the source for. Number one, unsigned hype, right? Sure. And number two was 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 the record the record review. Which was the which was the mic. what is known as the five mics. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, who who are some of the biggest bigger artists that people would know that came through Unsigned Hype? Oh man, I mean, uh, you know, Biggie. Let's start with that. I mean, Biggie. Biggie. Basically, uh, you know, Maddie C uh, was was given Biggie's demo tape by I think it was uh, Fifty Grand, his DJ, and Mr. C brought it up. Mm -hmm. uh, Maddie was doing an unsigned hype in the early years. Um, Maddie, you know, thought it was incredible, and we put it in unsigned hype in a magazine. This was in '92, uh, and a few months later was when Puff uh, was getting ready to start Bad Boy, and he called mm -hmm. me up and he said, "Hey, I'm I'm starting my own label now." You know, he had been at Uptown. It was he was still at Uptown because Bad Boy started at Uptown. Um, but they were giving him his own imprint and he's like, I'm looking for, for artists. So I'm like, yo, you know, let me, let me, uh, have Maddie, you know, bring this, this biggie demo up to you. And that's how big I sign, you know, uh, from, from, from that, uh, some of the others, you know, mob deep kind of a similar mm -hmm. situation. Uh, you know, they were in unsigned hype and we got helped them get their first deal with bones Malone at fourth and Broadway and, and then uh, Maddie brought them over to Lau because he had left to go work at Lau Records. Um, but uh, Common, I mean, I got Common his first record deal uh, mm -hmm. off of Unsigned Hype. Uh, I had put together a deal with uh, Alan Grunblatt, who was at Relativity at the time, to do an Unsigned mm -hmm. Hype album. And uh, Common was one of the first artists that was signed on for that project. 
and that's how Common got signed to Relativity. Um, mm -hmm. DMX was in an early uh, unsigned hype uh, in those years. Um, David Banner, uh, you know, on up through Wale, Jay Electronica. I, I, I also personally, you know, listened to Jay's demo and put him in the unsigned hype in maybe 2003, 2004. Um, Eminem was an unsigned hype. You know, before Dr. Dre knew about him or anything, um, uh, Riggs put him in unsigned hype when Riggs was doing the unsigned hype uh, column. And uh, uh, that helped a lot for him getting his deal. Uh, Capone and Noriega were in unsigned hype. Uh, mm -hmm. Jules Santana was part of a group that was in unsigned hype. I forget the name of his group. Um, Pitbull. Um, the, early, the, the early Pitbull who used to wear fitted hats, uh, basketball jerseys, yeah. everything. That's the Pitbull y'all know now. Shout the Pitbull that we know. Yeah, exactly. Pitbull used to be it's, fierce, fierce on the on, on, on the mic. I'm sure he still is, but he was known, you know, for those battle rap skills. He was he was crazy. Now, so people, just in case you don't know, Pitbull does those raps now that are that are commercial. He does that because he knows the formula. But when it comes to really battling and getting busy, please believe that man will roast your ass. <laughs> and man, don't don't you know you need to go back and do your homework and see what that man did start where he started and what he did. Yeah. The five mics, the record report. Yeah. Um you it was very rare to get five mics. How many how many albums have got five mics? Um I don't have it off top, but I would say now during the era when, when I was running the source, which was 88 to 2006, I would say it might have been 12 at the most, something like that. Um, I don't know exactly what happened in the years afterwards. I know maybe a few more did, but um, yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was something that everybody wanted. I mean, artists would go in the studio with the goal of making a five mic album. Major artists in hip hop, that was their goal to get a five mic rating in the source. I mean, they would do listening sessions for us and bring that, you know, Ice Cube come up, bring his album up to the source in the early days and play it for, for us and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was highly respected. And, you know, we, we were, we were known because we, we were accurate with a lot of, things in terms of you know rating things now there were some albums that you know should have gotten five mics that didn't you know like what like like which one i mean the chronic comes to mind you know chronic got four and a half um which was close but i mean to me the chronic is probably the best album of, of all time um mm -hmm. you know uh mob deep's first album got four and a half i think the the first wu-tang album got four and a half um yeah. There's a few more that I'm, I'm missing that that uh, you know definitely deserved five mics, and we went back in later years and kind of reissued some ratings to folks that that we felt deserved to get upgraded to, to five mics. So I, I want to explain this to people because we're giving we're giving you an education for people who don't understand what this was about and were not there at the time. I would say that five mics would be the equivalent 
of a of, of a Grammy Award for rappers in that era. It would be because the 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 these guys would rate your album and they would have no fucking they would have no mercy on you. If your album wasn't shit, there were people getting one mic. There were people getting two mics. You know, there were people getting half a mic. I saw people get no mics. So so when you got five mics, this 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 rating system was so on point that you knew if that person got five mics, you didn't even have to go and listen to it at the store. You just went and you grabbed it and you put it in your car. Now, I always heard that the reason that everybody walked out was because of um, Benzino being Benzino's album be, being given five mics. Is that true or false? That's, was that behind that's, it? That's, that's what was the truth? Uh, his 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 or his group's album never got five mics ever, uh, and that that happened years later. A controversy over a rating. The '94 walkout um, was. I mean, the the background of it is really what a lot of people don't know and is really most important in those last year or two preceding it uh the source editors kind of went from you know we we were like i said before we were the champions of hip-hop we were you know the people standing up for hip-hop and you know it's a, it's a fine line between doing that but also being critical of people and you know keeping it keeping it a hundred as far as like you said with the reviews but it seemed like those editors um the success and the power that they were gaining because of the sources power what was going to their head to an extent and it became we got a lot of public beefs in these years that people may or may not remember but there was uh, Cypress Hill, who we helped discover and make them successful by their second album. They were touring the country, burning copies of the source on stage. Uh, Public Enemy made a music video which depicted the S1Ws storming the office of the Sauce magazine and wrecking the office and basically trying to clown us. I mean, Ice Cube, again, who fucking love the source we were so much a part of helping his career in the early stages he dissed the source on on hand of the dead body with scarface um i mean i'm forgetting i mean ice t snoop was like fuck the source at one point around that time 94 so to me it was a lot of kind of ego and and crossing the line there's there's one thing to give an honest uh, criticism or review of an album, but it's another thing to kind of get personal and get into these public beefs. You know, you're, you're we're editors. We're not supposed to be the people out here in the public eye, you know, uh, beefing with people. Um, and I was trying to tell those guys, like, this is, you know, not the right thing. This, you know, we don't want to be the National Enquirer. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to lose credibility. And um, they just wouldn't listen. So there was a lot of a lot of tension between me and those guys. And this is also, you know, around a time where I created the Source Awards. And, you know, to do the Source Awards, you know, you're bringing everybody from every crew, every city all over the country into one place. And I'm the guy doing that. You know what I mean? And you got to, you know, you know, and again, we're talking hip hop. This isn't, you know, classical or 
rock music or whatever. This is the streets. So, you know, the more you start getting and beefing with motherfuckers, the streets are going to come to your, to your doorstep. And, you know, it just, to me, wasn't good business. And there was an ongoing beef about that. And the way the walkout ended up happening was they didn't, uh, uh, RSO, the Almighty RSO had a, gotten a record deal at this point at RCA Records. Uh, Steve mm-hmm. Stout signed them to RCA Records, and they had an EP coming out. It was a big deal. Um, it was, um, there was a, basically, I went to the editors, and I asked them, you know, can you guys write a little something about them? They have an album deal now. Like, you know, they're coming out on a major label. Can we get a little little write-up? Nothing crazy. Hell no, we're not covering them. We don't want to put nothing in. We don't like them. They're whack, this, that, and the other. To me, it was personal because of my beef that was going on with them. They're like, we're not going to, you know, support you and, and your boys or whatever. Fuck that. So um, I ended up putting an article in the magazine myself with mm-hmm. some other people to help write and, and get it done and put the article in the magazine that the editors didn't know about. And when the mag- that magazine came out, they used that as the basis of the walkout to say, hey, Dave put this article in and he manages this group and he's doing it for his own personal financial gain and, you know, this, that, and the other. And these guys are, are fucked up and this and talking all kind of craziness and, and put it out to, you know, there to, to the public and the media and everything. And it was, it was, you know, to me, it wasn't a smart move and it wasn't the way to handle it. Um, you know, maybe I could have handled the article situation a little differently as well, but it didn't, you know, I wasn't going to resign behind some shit. Like this is my shit. I started this shit. I'm the one who I work here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, making this shit pop and giving you guys, you know, an opportunity to pop. So I'm not stepping down from, from nothing. You know what I mean? So, uh, that's that's the story. It had nothing to do with any five mic rating or anything like that. And it really had to do with, you know, them trying to make a scapegoat out of uh, the RSO because they were trying to get me out. They wanted to take over the magazine thinking they were going to be able to get me out and they could have the magazine to themselves. And that was a miscalculation on their part. I want to talk about the source of um, people. You haven't been in hip hop unless you've been to the Source Awards. Um, the night that that because it was kind of in the middle of the East Coast West Coast War. The night that the Source Awards that Snoop performed at the Source Awards, right? This is your award show. You know, doing the shit whatever. When you hear the booze and you because you, you got to be there, you got to be seeing it, you got to be somewhere in the mix. You hear the booze, you hear the negative re- reaction from the Los Angeles artists in, in here in New York. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? <laughs> um, you know, my thing is again, you know, I'm the I'm the guy running the whole thing, running around crazy, trying to make this is our first televised award show. We had never done a televised show before, so I mean, it was a huge undertaking. Uh, Five thousand you know, some odd people there in the, in, in the garden at the Paramount Theater. Um, mm-hmm. So all I'm thinking is trying to, you know, just keep everything flowing and, and organized and, and, 
and make sure nothing really pops off. Um, and it didn't. You know, there was no, there was, you know, some tension, some words or whatever, but, you know, there was no, not one fight at that Source Awards. Nobody got injured, nothing like that. Um, of course, you know, it's a legendary moment, but, um, you know, a few things about that, you know, have been misreported and misunderstood over the years. And, um, you know, I want to... Such as what? Such as what? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, going into the Source Wars, this is, uh, was August of uh, 1995. Tupac is in jail, okay? Tupac got shot in 94, uh, and Tupac had beef with Bad Boy and Biggie that was going on after he got shot while he was in jail. Uh, but at the time of, of the Source Wars in August, nobody knew that Tupac was getting out and nobody knew he was going to death row. There was no, right. not one person there that night other than, you know, probably Suge and some of the death row people knew that those conversations had been taking place. Mm -hmm. um, so going into that night, you know, again, a lot of people feel like there was all this tension or whatever. There wasn't no tension. There was no beef between Death Row and Bad Boy or any of these people at this at this time. Um, so that's that's number one. Um, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people point the finger at, at Suge, um, you know, and I give Puff his props for keeping it cool when it when it went off. But there were some things that I think were said earlier on in the show that probably triggered Suge to feel like, hey, I'm just going to go up here and stunt on these these fools or whatever. Okay, so, so, so hold on. Let's, let's, let's go back. What were some of those things that were said <laughs> along the, before that happened that, that got him to that? Because, hey, hey, I, I, I was in the building, but I was running around doing my Tommy Boy shit. So I wasn't even sitting in my chair. I, you know, I was shaking hands, kissing babies. I didn't even understand what was going on. What were some of the things that were said to get shoved to that point. I don't know if I should give you this exclusive. Uh, uh, I need it. I haven't shared this this yet. Um, but one thing was when, because Death Row opened the show with that whole medley with the jail cells and explosions and rolling out Snoop on the on the uh, stretcher and everything. That shit was incredible. Set the whole show mm -hmm. off. The crowd was going crazy. Now maybe. An hour or whatever later, the Bad Boy performance happened with, with all of Puff's artists, Big, Kim and Junior Mafia, uh, Total, Craig Mack. I mean, their shit was, was incredible as well. Um, but at the beginning of that performance, Puff says he came out and he said something before the show started. Uh, he was kind of like in the dark under a spotlight, something about, you know, I live in the East and I'll die in the East. And in my mind, you know, that's one of the things because, you know, like you said, there had been East and West, you know, drama going on for years. So that's another thing. You know, the East and West tension goes back to the 80s, you know, with the Ghetto Boys and, and all the artists from the West Coast that felt like New York was shitting on them and didn't give them no, no credit and didn't think that they were, you know, were, were, you know, were, were good were making good music. And then they were right about that. I mean, New York was very, you know, just very New York centered for years mm -hmm. and, and wasn't open to people. And that was, mm -hmm. you know, a thing that I made sure in running the source, even though being in New York City, you know, I made sure that we showed love 
to everybody from every city, every region. And you go back through those sources, you'll see, you know, every West Coast, down mm-hmm. South was getting their their props from if they were making good music. And I mean, the Ghetto Boys shit was popping in, in 88. I mean, you know, the mm-hmm. all, all of these things were, you know, were were big. So um, that tension had been going on for years. So there wasn't any mm-hmm. particular East-West tension going into that night. And to me, you know, being that it was a New York crowd in New York, you know, the majority of those 5,000 people were people who bought tickets from the New York area to attend. You know, the front was the people that were invited or whatever from the labels and everything and the artists. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of set a tone of like, hey, the East Coast is in this motherfucker, da, da, da. You know, to me, I've never spoke to Suge about it, but that's one of the things I believe, you know, probably went through his mind like, man, I'm going to go up here and and I'm going to stun on these fools, man, because we're the shit right now. And they were, you know, and you could see even when Snoop went up and said, you know, to qu- calm shit down. And he was like, you know what I mean? Like, y'all don't got love for Death Row or Snoop Dogg. Motherfuckers had to be like, yeah, I mean, we pretty much do listen to your shit. We bump your shit, too. You know what I mean? So uh, they were they were at the top. And Bad Boy was, you know, just coming up right on their tail you know, on their heels, but Death Row was was the dominant force of hip-hop at that time. So... Now, now you're sitting there and Suge walks up and he, grab, he grabs the mic like this. You don't want something, son. You don't want... You, you, you don't want the CEO dancing in your video. It comes Death Row. And, and he, walk, he walk away, right? That's very fucking aggressive. What was going through your mind when you say, oh, shit, these motherfuckers about to tear up the Madison Square Garden. I'm going to owe $300,000 and shit. What's going through your mind? Because that, listen, I don't care what nobody says. That is a moment that will live forever. When he grabbed that mic like that and just said, you don't want more dancing in the video. You don't want to be. It comes death row. <laughs> you, I mean, you, I don't think you quite I mean, I you know, I don't think it was quite as aggressive as, as you're doing it. I mean, it, it was a bold move. And Suge's a big and intimidating type of, of dude and, and his demeanor, you know, and everything. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, my thing was, let me, you know, make sure shit stays under control. And, you know, uh, you know, Puff had a lot of people with him that were really upset and ready to, you know, try to start some shit and, you know, it was like trying to calm everybody down. And, you know, like I said, to Puff's credit, he he took that initiative and said, you know, we're not going to do this here, you know, because this was big for hip hop. Like this was the second one the year before was the first big Source Awards in 94. It wasn't on TV, but that was the one Tupac was there and Wu-Tang was there. And I mean, it was an amazing show. And and, you know, hip-hop wasn't getting no fucking props from nobody people was shitting on hip-hop for years back then like so to have an award show for us that recognized the real skills and the real craft and the real talent and the real ingenuity that was being put into hip-hop in those uh days it was big man and that was the way that i got everybody involved you know going to the the jay princes and the Shugs and the Puffs and the Russells and all the different people and saying, hey, this is big for hip hop. If we can pull this off and I need, you know, us all to come together and make this happen. And and it works. So 
um, you know, I think people had a certain, hopefully a certain amount of, you know, respect for that, that kept things from, from uh, getting more out of hand uh, like they, they might have. Look, it got, it got out of hand. It didn't get out of hand right there, but it got out of hand. at that. So, I, you know, in my mind, I was imagining you, I imagine when, from my point of view, when you heard that shit, you got up, you must have pulled out your seat and you were fucking talking to everybody because that that's that's going to get crazy. That's going to get crazy. Um, did you think that it was going to, at that moment, because to me, that was the defining moment of when I can remember shit just went to the left. Did you think that it was going to go to the place that it went? Or did you think, ah, this is a little tip, you know, they'll talk it out. Like, what, like what said, at, at that point, and that's, again, part of the misreporting, is people try to say that's the start of where, you know, why Tupac and Biggie got killed, that type of thing. But coming out of that, again, that was, you know, yeah, you know, there was some tension, and yeah, he said, Shook said what he said and kind of dispuffed publicly, but it wasn't like, Tupac wasn't part of that beef. The Tupac mm -hmm. beef was a mother, you know, he got shot. You know what I mean? He, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that was some real beef where he got robbed and shot and all that kind of stuff set up and all that. You know what I mean? That was the beef. So when it became more clear that Tupac was going to be riding with death row, I think, but at that point, Suge hadn't inherited that beef yet. The real no, shit popped off right. in Atlanta, which was yeah. maybe a month, six weeks later, when Big yeah. Jake, rest in peace, got shot and killed. Um, yeah. And but I, you know, I agree with you with that. But I just, I, and, and it, it, it wasn't a beef. Tupac wasn't involved. It wasn't all that. But it was there was that was the start of what I would call the tension. You, you, you know, that was the start of what I would call attention. You are correct. It really kicked off when when Big Jake got killed in um, in in Atlanta by one of um, by one of um, Puff people who was a legend in my neighborhood. You know, he was a legend in my part of in my part of the city. He was Wolf was the shit. You know what I'm saying? Like Wolf just he was he was a legend in. Co-op City, Mount Vernon, Valley area. There's nothing else to say. He's a fucking hero. Up there. He's rest, a fucking peace, rest in peace to Wolf. Yeah, rest in peace to Wolf and rest in peace to Jay. Um, that did start it. Um, how did how did the knowing that knowing that you had such a huge situation? How did the source? Because I can't think about it now because I haven't gone back and read it, read, it, read any of the magazines. How did the source handle that 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 quote unquote beat? How did y'all handle it? How did y'all, how did you navigate that? Well, you know, like I said, it, it, you know, it wasn't a beef at that point. So, you know, we, I'm sure we mentioned it in the magazine, what Suge has said or whatever, um, but it wasn't like reported as a big beef because it wasn't a beef. I mean. Right, no, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about full-blown, full-blown. Right. And I don't, and to be honest with you, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I never, I never personally looked at it as the East Coast, West Coast, Coast beat. I looked at it as these dudes from New York got a problem with these dudes from LA, and 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 right. that was that. Right. You know, that's that's the way I looked at it. But 
How did you handle like when it got to full blown, where everybody was had, had given their stance and and put themselves where they were going to stand? How did the source handle that? I don't even remember if you reported on it or not. How did you handle that entire situation? Yeah, I mean, and did you talk to anybody from each party before you did it? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely were covering all of that stuff during that that period of time. Um, you know, we did interviews with Pac. We did interviews with uh, Big. We did interviews with Suge, Puff. Um, but, you know, going back to what I was saying before, like, you know, I always understood, again, which is something that we've seen in other media outlets in hip-hop maybe in the past 15 to 20 years. Like, you can't be in this and starting shit with people and hyping shit up, you know, because motherfuckers are getting killed out here. And you know what I mean? Like, it's real. And you can't be playing around with people and, you know, getting in the middle of shit. And, like, you you have to know how to maneuver if you're going to be a really authentic hip-hop media outlet. And that was something that, you know, I prided myself in. So, you know, I wanted to make sure, especially after, you know, I didn't have the walk after the walkout was over, I had more control. Now the people I brought in were working for me and I was able to control the editorial better so that it wouldn't get out of hand. Like it was getting with those guys before. And, um, so we were very responsible as possible. I mean, you know, we did a cover with, I remember the Suge Knight cover, and I forget what exactly what the quote was on the front, but it was something like, you know, I got love for the East Coast. That was the quote on the front of the source under Suge's picture. You know, now Vibe, you know, was the magazine that, you know, was has been accused over the years of being irresponsible by hyping shit up with the East versus West cover. And sometimes people try to mix the source into that, which also mm-hmm. is inaccurate. You know, you can go back and study every issue of the source and you're not going to find that type of inflammatory approach to doing shit. You know, that just wasn't how I did shit. And I understood you couldn't do shit like that if you wanted to be credible and 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 be for the people at the end of the day. You know, and that's what I was always in this for, you know, because I always felt hip hop was going to change the world and revolutionize the world and had the power to, you know, really change shit. And, uh, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that was kind of how, how you, we dealt with how it. You dealt with it. Yeah. How you dealt with it. I have two final questions and I want to talk about this rally because the fact that you're, you're doing something of this nature is necessary and important in this, in this, in this climate. Number one, how did you deal with being being the biggest thing in the game? How did you deal with an upstart like Vibe coming along? And number two, what is the thing that or, or, or the series of, of events that just made the source go downward to the point that you left? All right. I'll start with the Vibe. I mean, people, a lot of people don't know the, the, the backstory to, to Vibe. So... It's maybe 91, 92, Russell Simmons calls me up and he's like, Dave, you know, uh, Quincy Jones, I want to introduce you to him. He wants to start a rap magazine, but I'm telling him, you know, he needs to just invest in the source. You guys are the shit, blah, 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 blah. 
and so he he sets up an introduction. I didn't meet Quincy initially, but some of the people working with Quincy uh, from his company, and they were already beginning to work with Time Warner and Time Warner's magazine division, which was huge. And so we start having meetings and discussions, and they're like, "Man, we love the source. We love you guys. We, you know, we want to invest." We're going back and forth for like a year, you know, ends up, they fly, they fly us out to LA and uh, we're whisked up into the, into the hills, into, you know, Beverly Hills where, where Quetzi's mansion is. And we're going to finally, you know, meet with him for, you know, what we're thinking is the big, the big deal. We're going to be able to close the big deal finally. So, uh, so he has us waiting around, waiting around, finally Quincy shows up, walks in the room, and basically he says, you know, listen, guys, uh, I've decided I want to start my own magazine. It's going to be called Volume. Um, but, you know, I want to make an offer to buy you guys out and give you jobs to come work for me at the new magazine. <laughs> and uh, the offer, suffice to say, was 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 pretty low. Um so I got the fuck up out of there pretty quick and realized I had been wasting my time. Some of the other guys were entertaining the offer, but uh, after that, they had to change the name from, from uh, Volume because they found out that there was a trademark problem over in London. Somebody had a Volume magazine, and that's when they ended up switching it to Vibe. So then Vibe came out a year or so later after that. Do you do you feel like well, well I know first and foremost when you could listen you could have told me that you were going to get have your own magazine I could have been in my own house I could have got the phone call for that shit I I didn't have to come out here for that shit now of course I know that he saw what kind of jeans you had on because he saw the back of your ass but in your mind throughout the whole process of that year did you feel like did anything say to you maybe they kind of lining me up. Maybe they're trying to see the inside of what the source is. And oh, for sure. Going I mean, that's what it. they did do. I know that's what they were doing. They were just, you know, trying to milk me to get all the information, learn from what we were doing, everything we were doing, and bring that over to their shit. And, you know, but after that happened, again, I wasn't, you know, yeah, I was a little annoyed, like that's some sucker shit, you know, what you're doing or whatever. But I'm like, see, the thing is, I knew in listening to Quincy, he didn't understand hip hop. Like, you know, no disrespect. Quincy's done amazing things for black music. Um, so many contributions, but Quincy did, did, did not un understand hip hop and really didn't respect hip hop in its authentic form. Quincy, you know, and if you go back and you look at vibe in the beginning, like his idea was, you know, to put, you know, Snoop Dogg on the cover one month and then come back with, you know, uh, Whitney Houston. And this is before, you know, Whitney w was was cool or whatever. She was pop or, or, you know, Janet Jackson or just things that, you know, Chardet, you know, like, you know, these things didn't mesh. Hip hop was hip hop. We had the R&B mm -hmm. hip hop, the Marys and the Jodeces that we fuck with. And separately, you know, shit, I grew up listening to Anita Baker and, you know, uh, fucking Frankie Beverly and shit. Of course, we all love that music, but it didn't mesh 
in with the hip hop culture, you know, directly. It was borrowed from and we sampled it and shit like that, but you couldn't really merge those things the way he thought that he could do. So I was like, look, I'm not worried because we're going to have the streets behind us. We got the credibility. This shit's going to be kind of watered down. And what ended up happening is they actually helped the source because they put, you know, millions of dollars behind Vibe. They went out and got a lot of big companies to advertise that weren't, you know, interested in hip hop or the source before. And that, you know, that carried over to, to us. So, um, you know, we had a rivalry with Vibe over the years, but, but we basically, and, and, you know, I talked to Keith Klingscales, who was the publisher for a while uh, in those years, recently in the last few years, and he admitted it. We, we were kicking their ass up and down, you know, the field on every front. We outsold Vibe, you know, our compilation albums were huge. They, they copied the source hip hop hits and did the Vibe hits and their shit, you know, sold whatever, five copies or something. I mean, the Vibe Awards was a knockoff from the Source Awards I had been doing, and that never, you know, reached a level of the Source Awards. You know, it is what it is. I mean, no no disrespect, there were some great, talented people that were part of Vibe. You know, shout out to Keith and my man Len Burnett and uh, some of the editorial people that, that worked there were very, very talented. But uh, when it came to hip-hop and, you know, the streets, uh, the source was, you know, was was the, the the thing, and they could never, you know, they could never match that that DNA, you know. What 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 wound up happening to to take it to where you said I have to leave, or you know, what what led to the point where you just said, okay, I'm I'm good and I'm going away, I'll sell it or whatever. Well, well it didn't quite happen that way, Scoop, but uh, I'll try to give this one briefly as well. I mean, the big, the biggest part of the downfall of the source, and this is also, you know, not really well documented uh, or understood and has been misreported over the years. The real beginning of the end was the internet, okay? If you remember in the late 1990s, the dot-com world was exploding and there was not only tens, but hundreds of millions of dollars being raised and invested into dot com dot com that every commercial was dot com something this that and the other and there was all these hip-hop dot coms that you know there was urban box office and hook.com and 360hiphop.com and volume that hbo was doing i mean there was all kind of people coming out trying to compete with me at the source by doing a hip-hop website dot com and then trying to get into everything else so I kind of got, that was the first time ever in the, at that point, maybe 10 years of running the source that I felt a little bit threatened because there were people from hip hop involved. Puff was involved with one of those. Russell was involved with one of those. They had way more money than, than the source had, even though we were successful and making a lot of money, it wasn't nowhere, nothing like having a hundred million or 200 million in the bank, you know, to just spend on anything and everything. So I'm like, I got to, you know, I got to get in this game. And I had a vision, you know, for the Internet and where it was going to go. I mean, because I knew that, that you know, of course, hip hop was loved all over the planet Earth, uh, every country you could name. And the source.com was going to be my way of taking 
you know, that DNA of the source and our reputation and brand and credibility and spreading it, you know, to every everyone on the planet that had access to, you know, the Internet. And uh, but, you know, I made a mistake in kind of betting the farm early. So I took out a big loan, uh, $12 million loan and basically mortgaged the magazine to get the loan. Um, that was a big amount of money for me to have 12 million in the bank to do what I wanted. But, you know, I opened new offices, started the source.com and like almost every .com in those days, it didn't work. You know, the, the speeds weren't good enough for the technology and, the advertising revenue wasn't there, and it was all the people of- weren't there. The people didn't understand yet either. Right. It wasn't as accessible as it is. It wasn't. It wasn't this. Oh, no. it wasn't this. This was the very, very beginning. So I was too early, and gambled too much. That's really the thing that set things in motion for the ultimate, you know, demise of the source. And for me, you know, um, I was now in debt. Uh, I had to close up a lot of shit and source.com and you know i didn't understand a lot of this stuff you know uh yeah i went to harvard but i i never went to business school i didn't know about loans and warrant fees and all this type of 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 shit you know and so i got caught up in you know in owing a whole bunch of money and i was under a lot of pressure and then you know i ended up bringing in a, a uh investment company that came in and bought a piece of the source uh, I still own the majority of it, and I thought I was in good shape, but I didn't understand that either. It's a private equity fund, and I didn't understand that a lot of times these private equity funds they'll they'll lure you in, but there's certain things they'll they'll do to ultimately try to take the company from you, and uh, that's what happened. A number of years later, there was all kind of other you know shit going on amidst all that that just created this firestorm of shit going on you know, with the M&M shit and with the, you know, different lawsuits and the different, all kinds of other controversies. But the root of it all was the gamble on the internet and then getting into this investment deal where they were able to, you know, once I defaulted on, on, on the loan, the next mm-hmm. loan, they were able to basically push me out. Um, and so I, I ended up being pushed out in the end in, in uh, 2006. Um, and that was it. I haven't had any direct connection to the source uh, since that time. Two, two questions. Number one, well, not two questions. One question, and I want you to tell us about what you're doing right now, because that's actually the reason that I wound up calling you in the beginning. Sure. Um, have you got the feeling back to do something? 100%. I mean, I... Is that feeling, is that feeling in you it, to do something new? Because, you know, listen, nobody can take the plan out of your head. They can't push you out of your own fucking head. So you have it all here. You did it once already. That's the most dangerous shit in the world. So do you have a feeling to do the energy to do it again? And number two is tell us about what you're going to do, what you're going to do with this, with this, uh, with this summit. Sure. Sure. So uh, I definitely have that feeling. I definitely have a vision, um, and I definitely have the energy. I'm, I'm in the best shape I've been in. I've been, you know, exercise, you know, five days a week. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm a vegan now. I'm on a, I'm on a 50 year plan, you know, for the next 50 years. So, um, 
I'm ready from that mentally and physically ready to take things to a level way beyond, you know, what the source ever was. I believe that that's possible, uh, you know, in this digital world and going back to what we were talking about towards the beginning. Um, there's no one voice for the culture right now that has the kind of authority and the authenticity that the source had for so many years. And uh, to me, that's, a, that's an opportunity. There's a void out there. And uh, so I, am, have, I do have plans and things that I'm going to be announcing hopefully very, very soon to get back into the media world um, and try to recreate something, you know, similar to what the source was, but obviously in a different form because we're in a different time now. Uh, obviously, magazines are finished and, you know, it's a, it's a digital world right now. So, um, but I'm really excited. Uh, I'm very close to, to getting, you know, some of these plans in the works. So that's, that's coming. Um, and then this uh, thing that I'm doing next week um, is really, I'm really excited about this. And I think also this is the start of something that will grow. Um, you know, in, uh, in July, I woke up one day and I'm just looking at everything that's going on out here with the protests and all the social and political unrest. And I'm feeling like, you know, hip hop doesn't have a voice out here. You know, yes, there are certain individuals in the hip hop world that, that are actively involved and in doing things. But as a whole, hip hop doesn't really have a voice the way that it once did. And the way in particular right now that I feel that it should, um, you know, Black Lives Matter is very, very important and has, has, you know, done a lot of important things. But Scoop, as you know, before it was Black Lives Matter, there was hip hop. We, we were Black Lives Matter in the mm -hmm. late 80s, early 90s. Not, you know, not one thing that's being talked about now wasn't being talked about in hip hop many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so fortunately now it seems like, you know, people are actually listening and paying attention to the inequities, the injustices, the racial disparities, the systemic oppression, the systemic racism, the white supremacy, all these kinds of things that many of us who have been around hip hop all these years have been well aware of and have been trying to fight. Uh, so given that there's this awakening now, you know, it feels to me like, you know, hip hop's gotta, if there's ever a time, cause there's never been a time in our entire lives, as long as we've been on this planet, you know, um, these same conditions have persisted, gone on and on. The violence, the, the you know, the jail, the, the poverty, the, all the other problems that plague the inner city communities, um, they've gone on and on, no matter, you know, who's the president, whatever, this, that, and the other. But now maybe there's a time when we can actually see some change to these things happen. So I feel like hip hop as a community and as a culture and as the leadership needs to step up. So the idea I came up with was to, to call up a bunch of folks and see if I could get them together uh, to do a virtual uh, summit. 
and it's taking place next Tuesday, uh, the 22nd. It's a, it's a seven-hour, all-day live stream called the Hip-Hop Political Education Summit. And um, we're going to have a bunch of different panels and a bunch of incredible people that have gotten involved. Uh, again, shout-out to my partner, uh, Bukhari Katwana, who's been helping me put this together for the last six weeks. Um, mm -hmm. But we have everybody from Chuck D., Bun B., Dame Dash, Cornell West, Michael Eric Dyson, Senator Cory Booker, thank you for, for that connection, uh, Mayor Ross Baraka. Uh, first, first, first thing I thought when, when we talked about, I said, yo, let me, let's, let's call Cory Booker, man. Let's, let's get him in there, man. That was the first thing I said. Let's, as soon as I heard you talk to me about it, I said, yo, let's go, let's go get Cory Booker. Man. Yeah. So that had to be done. Yep, Rhapsody. Um, man, I'm forgetting some of the other great, great people that are, are, are a part of this thing, but... Um, is Corday in there? Corday is in there, right? Corday, yes, my man, my boy Corday. Thank him for participating. YG. Um, so we're trying to have some younger folks and some older folks kind of get together, people from different areas, scholars, artists, activists, and we're, we're focusing around the issue of voter suppression. Um, and this, you know, this is our first summit, but we felt that that was something really, really important um, because it's a huge problem that people, you know, aren't as informed about as they need to be. And voter suppression basically just means that, you know, as a, as a citizen of this country, you have a fundamental right to be able to vote. Now, whether you want to do it or not, who you want to vote for, that's something else. But the right to vote is the cornerstone of the democracy uh, here. And there's a lot of people who are being prevented from exercising that right to vote if they so choose. There's many different things, whether it's some of the laws for uh, people that were incarcerated that prevent them from voting. And even when uh, in Florida, for example, when they overturn that law, then they put on a poll tax. So, you, you know, you still got to pay if you want to be able to vote in Florida if you were a felon before. And, you know, the things they've been doing this year with shutting down a lot of the polling locations to make the lines, you know, go on for blocks and blocks to discourage people from voting, you know, fucking with the post office, um, you know, gerrymandering. There's, there's many different tactics, you know, uh, social media, you know, uh, campaigns that are being waged to, you know, keep people from voting, being able to vote or wanting to vote. And so what we're doing with this summit next week is exposing a lot of that stuff, talking about it, talking about what can be done and making sure people that that want to exercise their right to vote know how to do that uh, coming up, not only in this election, but but going forward, because, you know, this election ain't going to change, you know, everything alone by far, no matter who wins. You know, we need to do much, much more in terms of bringing in new people in our cities, in our states, in our Congress, you know, in all kinds of our, our judicial system, you know, all of these things need to be taken on. But the, the, the incredible thing, Scoop, that I see is this, um, over 60% of the electorate in the election this year, meaning over 60% of the people that are eligible to vote in this country fall between the ages of 18 and 55. Now, if you think about 
55. That means we were born in 1965. So mm -hmm. when Rapper's Delight came out in 1979, you were 14 years old. Okay. Now, obviously, people in New York City and maybe Philly, whatever, they were into hip hop before 1979. But 1979 is a starting point for most people around the country and the world to know about rap music and, and hip hop. And it's only gotten bigger since Rapper's Delight to where we are today. So mm -hmm. my point is that somebody 55, you grew up from 14 years old listening to and being part and being exposed to and influenced by hip hop. Obviously, anybody younger than 55, down to 18, from the time they were born, hip hop has been part of their life and their world. It's, it's everywhere in the world. So what I'm saying is that that's 60% of people, the majority of them, are people that have been influenced by hip-hop. And in my opinion, when you're influenced by hip-hop, you develop a certain worldview, a certain perspective on things that's unique from people that aren't so exposed to hip-hop or part of hip-hop. You know, that's what I was saying. You know, we were talking about, we were talking about all this shit 30 years ago, you know, because in hip-hop, we could see this stuff clearly. This is what what's the fuck is going on out here even if nobody else wanted to admit it or, 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 or see it. But so there's an underlying, you know, sort of bond that, that unites us. So if we can kind of, you know, elevate that and light a fire under that and unify people from 18 to 55 in this country of all races, of all socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, to come together for change we can do whatever the fuck we want to do we will be the most powerful group in america and we can mm -hmm. do whatever we want to do to change this country and make it the way it needs to be the way it should be um right. so that's that's really the vision of the hip-hop political education summit um we're starting with this but we're not stopping we're gonna this organization is something that bakari and i are going to continue to grow for years to come and do more things. Um, so I really hope everybody that's watching this will participate. You go to uh, the website now, uh, register.hiphoppoliticaled.com, and you can sign up to be a participant in the summit next week. Hold on, hold on, hold on one second, man. What is that? Give it, give it to me one more time. Um, register. Dot dot hip-hop political ed for ed hip-hop political ed dot com well, let me just make sure i got it for some reason it's not well hip-hop shit just put you can just put hip-hop political ed dot com you don't have to put the register you can get to that page if you go to the website if it don't right, hip-hop political hip-hop political ed dot com ed Get at it, boom, post. Get that in. Okay, boom, there we go. Pin that real quick. Hold on, pin that real quick. Yeah, I haven't been, some reason I haven't been seeing all these comments. For some reason they weren't. No, they, we, we, we had, I had them off. Because oh. I, I can't concentrate oh. when I see that shit. Oh. So, so I want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming through, brother. I appreciate it. You know, if you don't, if you need anything from me, I'm here. 
I, again, I want to thank you, not only for you know just being a friend, but the fact that you created something that took hip hop to the next level. And just as a fan, I respect that. As well as putting me in your magazine to do that column took me to another place. So I thank you very much, man. Thank you very much, man. I, I, I'll check you later, man. And we'll talk. We'll talk later on and later on next week, so I can just assist in any way I need. Most definitely. Much love and keep doing what you're doing. We're gonna we're gonna talk soon. All right. God bless. That's Dave Mays. Make Noise with Fat Man Scoop is produced by myself alongside Raj Kachetcha and the team at creativecontentagency.com. Please support this podcast by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love that. And by following this podcast on Spotify and sharing links to episodes you enjoy with your friends. Do it. You can also email the show via podcast at fatmanscoop.com. I answer that. Or you can DM me at Fat Man Scoop. Yes, I answer DMs.